Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron, and we are in the lobby of the Vancouver Real Estate Forum as part of our forum series. Our guest today is Shanur Jadavji from Lotus Capital. Welcome to the show, Shanur. Thanks for having me on. So Shanur, as always, we kind of start with your story. And so founder and president of, of Lotus, you know, where did you, how did you get into this in the first place? And, you know, start from as early back as you want to, right? Your sure. first steps or, you know, where in your life do you think is the most appropriate? Well, I think part of this is about entrepreneurship. And I think that was sort of ingrained in me from a child. And it started off by, you know, being in the, in selling Persian carpets and, you know, school, those toffee things that you used to get. And kind of winning all those competitions, et cetera. But uh, I came from a family that did uh, multifamily and a hotel business in in Canada and the U.S. And I went to UBC, did my uh, urban land there and finance and came out and ended up by chance at Collier's, working there for about five years and loved it, learned about all the other asset groups, retail, industrial, office, and then took some time off, took a year off and said, hey, what do I want to do? And realized that, you know, as much as I loved cooking and baking, it just wouldn't really intellectually meet me. It was more of a hobby. And I decided to create Lotus and my earnings that I'd made from Collier's. And those were great years. I came in in 88 when you couldn't do anything wrong. So it worked out quite well. So there were some good savings. And I opened up Lotus in my my bedroom and uh, did my first deal, bought an a, a industrial complex in North Vancouver that was 80,000 square feet and it was totally mismanaged. It didn't even have leases. Every, the, the landlord knew everybody and then he happened to pass away and his son was running it and I saw him sweeping the yard one day as I was driving by and I went in and started to talk to him and realized that he had no idea how to run this thing. So Collier's got involved because that was my alma mater and we did a deal and I did, you know, 46 leases and sort of Only, only 46? Because <laughs> <laughs> it was small bay wow, industrial. Wow, that's so, a lot. And, uh, there are what, like, like 500 you know, square feet spaces? Yeah, like, it was like, like a storage like facility. 1,100 square feet, <laughs> 600. It was a lot of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, learned pretty quickly that I probably needed some help and I was going to get involved in other deals, but uh, I was very lucky the people who I had sold buildings to and had worked with, I had seen some spark in me and decided they would support my first venture. So I had great partners and took that business and grew it and did some more deals in the Vancouver context. Some of them were small development deals. And then in 99, I headed out to Calgary and did my first deal with a colleague of mine from Collier's days, Jason Caudle, who's at RBC. And he sold me my first office building in Calgary. And I uh, went from there, and in that time, GE did a lot of stuff for us in terms of lending, and I built some great relationships there. And in particular, I made very good friends with a, with a gentleman by the name of Peter Agar, who was actually a friend, who we hiked together, traveled together, did some things like that. And he then was one of the founding partners with John Love in Kingset. So in 2004, I did my first JV deal with Kingset, which was really exciting for me. And went from there and started to develop new relationships out east and be sponsored. And, uh, you know, we always put up sort of 80-20 type deals. 
And uh, you couldn't do much wrong also in that cycle in the Calgary-Edmonton market. So I did sort of grocery-anchored centers, suburban office or uh, Beltline office, and just carried on and it worked out really well. And, and then as time went on, you know, CMBS debt, you couldn't do anything wrong. You could ask for what you wanted and the spreads were getting narrower for those lenders. And I thought, gee, you know, there's something terribly wrong here. I didn't understand it, but I was doing some nonprofit work for an organization called the Aga Khan University in Pakistan. And I was doing some real estate for my family in India, which was sort of driven by, it was resort sort of living. And they had the land and we had the idea. But I used to go through London a lot and all my friends were IB bankers and they would talk about, you know, the CMPS and the debt that they were buying and, and it, not my world. So I didn't understand. It just didn't seem right. So I came back and in 2007, that very office building that I bought in 1999, I sold to artists at $28 rents. And, and you know, it was, we kicked it out of the park because we had bought $8 gross rents when we bought it. But that was my last asset. And I got out of the market. And then I was just lucky. Wow. I was reading, really, really reading the tea leaf. Well, well lucky and lucky smart. Lucky and though, I, right? you know, I mean, this didn't feel right. Something didn't feel right. So got out, came back to Vancouver, did some deals here and got involved in a, what is a major development for me on the corner of Kingsway and 12th. And with an old business partner of mine, helped him redevelop the Honda dealership there. And so we did a, a full-on Honda dealership with working base. So I went to Honda school and then we built a tower on that. It was 13 stories and it was, it took that time, took two years in rezoning. And the reason was that it was the highest building. It involved buying, you know, an alleyway and creating a park. And there's just so much that was going on. And I didn't want to start the building when I got my permit. I wanted all my pricing to be done because costs at that time were escalating in 9, 10 still. So I sold maybe 80% of the building and kept a little bit just because I thought costs would go up or we'd find something else. But we benchmarked in that location. That location was sort of a $350 a foot location. We came out and averaged about $550 at that time in you know, 2009, 10, 11. That was, those were great numbers to be had. And we had fixed price on our construction costs so that it worked out really well. And then uh, ended all that and decided, you know, it was time to sort of look at the next chapter of Lotus. And that involved growing the team and bringing in some expertise. You know, brought in a, a gentleman by Cam Reeve from Kingsat. We got somebody from LaSalle. I had my head of asset management who's now been with me for 25 years. And we looked at all the asset classes and said, you know, everything has gone up. And the only thing that hasn't gone up is industrial. And the rents haven't gone up. We haven't seen, you know, any kind of cap compression. And it's safe because if we buy multi-tenanted industrial, we should be good because that's kind of how I started. And at the same time, Kingset had bought ING. And so we had a relationship and called them and they were kind enough to give us our first big deal. And it was, a, it was an Eastern deal. It was a Toronto sort of Ontario-based deal. And I had never played in Ontario. So it was now a foray of going from becoming a Vancouver firm to a Western Canadian firm to becoming a Canadian firm. And I uh, went out there and they were kind enough to make some calls and call appraisers and lenders and say, hey, you know, friend of Kingset, she's, you know, pay attention. And we started to, we were given that, the door was open for us to do a bunch of stuff. And for four years, we bought 5 million square feet of industrial. Was this the... Um the industrial near the airport that they bought from 
I it was everywhere. Okay. It was everywhere. So okay. it was in Montreal. It was in Toronto. It was in a, a Calgary. We did a whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. in Calgary, but we just bought big chunks. But it's from there a very large purchase. Yes, that did exactly. So when I was at Collier's, actually, I had listings that was part of that part of that portfolio. Okay. So <laughs> there you go. So really fun to do all that, and we, you know, we we were early in that cycle. We bought in the 50s and we sold in the 80s. We probably left something on the table at the end, but we were in it for four or five years. But it gave us some really great traction. We also did some stuff in Northwest US with the same thesis and it worked out quite well too. So, you know, and now we're kind of chapter four. When did the disposition of that sort of take place sort of a couple years ago? Well, it was a repositioning, right? So we needed to do leasing. We needed to do some CapEx. We needed to change tenant profiles. And we probably sold from, you know, 16 and 17. Those were really, because we had, as we were doing this, it was a big equity check for us. So we ended up having two family offices and one institutional partner. So it was great because it wasn't like we were doing high net worth guys or we were doing, you know, just sort of private equity. It was actually a very different structure for us. And there was a timeline on it, and we needed to get through that timeline because our institutional partner was part of a closed fund, mm-hmm. and so we needed to get that going. Yeah. So, what is the the next step? Then you said chapter four. Yeah. What is, is the next yeah. step? Yeah. What do you we're, see for chapter four? Now, where you, now, well, no, I guess you, you know you, you've gotten rid of all of those assets, like basically almost, everything. Be, almost. Okay. Yeah. And so we've been doing. You know, our space has always been value add. We've been really good at that, and we've been very, very good at the opportunistic play. Mm. We started to do something a little bit different in 2014, and it was sort of a result of the industrial space we were in. You know, we were asked if we wanted to go public. We spent some time with RBC and realized that really, you know, we're just real estate people. We know nothing about the capital markets. But we were excited about, you know, doing something in the capital markets. So we spent a lot of time with a couple of different brokers, and in particular, Justin Boza, who was at Scotia at the time. And he brought a few deals to us, and we wanted to meet a management team that we could align our values with, and that had a thesis that made sense to us. So in 2014, we took a big chunk of a private placement for ProReit, which was a, is a diversified REIT based out of Montreal. And, you know, we took that, we created a strategic relationship. They needed assets out west. They needed other assets because their thesis was about buying grocery-anchored shopping centers in tertiary markets and major markets in, in Atlantic Canada. So good cap rates, great distribution. But they needed to grow and change and diversify. So we were able to provide some of our assets that we stabilized, went into that portfolio. We have sort of a financing type arranged with, with them too for assets that we see while they come and play with us. And we're pretty proud of them because last week, you know, they announced that they're, when we bought them, they had $50 million of assets. Today, they're just over $500 million. And they are, you know, they've gra- they're graduating towards the TSX. And how, are, what kind of oversight do you have uh, other than maybe, maybe some board members? So or? I'm a board member, uh, but we also have a strategic relationship. So whenever we see something that fits in their bucket, we send it over. We're in constant conversation. Peter Agar is also my partner in that. And so we've spent a lot of time introducing them to assets, particular acquisition strategies, because they're still a growing concern. And the guys who run that, Jim Beckerleg and... Uh, Gordy Lawler are guys who did the Canmark deal. And I don't know if that's before your time, but Commonar bought them many mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. So they are, you know, they are used to running a billion dollar REIT. And, you know, they've been doing sort of retail and they need to grow that into this billion dollar organization. So I think they needed help from people like us. 
And it's worked out to be a great relationship. So what are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do tomorrow? <laughs> well, so the last two and a half years, we've been focused at home. We found it, uh, it's been very difficult to find the value add place. So we've been doing a lot of one-offs. We focused on the multifamily sector here in Vancouver and in urban locations, uh, specifically employment corridors, transportation corridors. We've bought older three-story buildings. We've bought lower rents, put in a good renovation budget, and then sort of, you know, almost doubled our rents as a result. It's been very organic. We had a very long line on it. We thought it was going to take five, six, seven years. But in two and a half years, we've seen 60% of our our portfolio turn in terms of tenancy. So the returns, rather than being sort of an income deal, they became a a double-digit sort of value-add deal. So now we're sort of probably accelerated on thinking about development, but we're, you know, we're very cautious given everything you've probably heard today with respect to what's going on in development and the rental market and the condo market in Vancouver as just generally getting through civic issues. So we're taking a a slow step towards that again. We uh, also have uh, identified that in the infill market that there's an opportunity. We've brought on a construction partner that has a large construction outfit here. And it's a really great balance because we're the development manager, they're the construction manager. We get sort of ready pricing on things. And uh, you're, you're in predominantly the residential space. Are yeah, you, absolutely. Yeah. We've totally focused on that here and right that now. Condos only? Or are you thinking about multifamily? What's the... I think it's both. The, I mean, uh, you know, we think we've got I both think everybody's things. going through that exercise right yeah, now. Yeah, and, and you had mentioned sort of civic challenges. Or, you know, what can you expand on that? Just, I, I guess maybe just to put my words in your mouth, you're just talking about sort of the regulatory challenges yeah, that we're going I think through, there's just, different layers of government. Exactly, and there's a lot of confusion. You've got new government. They're trying to figure out what to do next. I think on the rental side, there's some great programming available from all three levels of government. And somehow they need to figure out how to talk to themselves. I think, you know, BC Housing is instrumental in bringing the feds and the, and the civic bodies together. But I think there's a lot of nimbyism. And I think, you know, this, this whole CAC issue is massive. What it's, do you mean by that? Sorry, just to expand for those that may not be familiar with it. Which part? CAC. So these are sort of ancillary, extraordinary development charges. And you, know, you used to be able to provide amenities, do different things. But now the dollar amount for that is pushing north of $400 a a buildable foot. Mm-hmm. In some cases, 500. And I think it's making it impossible to do deals because you've, you've got, you know, really expensive land. Then you've got labor costs that are going up. I and mean, we have, a, we have a, a labor force that's dwindling. A UDI report has shown that we're not replacing the number of workers that are leaving and retiring. You've got the cost of materials going up and we've seen that. And then you've got this sort of elongated period of time that you have to get through civic approvals, like a a zoning, will something that's already zoned may take you two plus years now, and something that isn't will take you four plus years. And then all of a sudden there's additional requirements, which is the CAC that you're talking about. Yeah, and there's, you know, so it's just so dilutive. And on the multifamily side, we see some really exciting stuff on the, this sort of affordable rental side, but there's also the missing middle. And I think that there's, the rental stock in Canada is 40 to 60 years old. And we haven't done anything to replace it. We've been renovating a little bit because it's been very fragmented, the ownership here in Vancouver, maybe not necessarily in other places. But as the urban story goes, there just isn't enough rental accommodation. We've been below 2% for years now in terms of our vacancy rate. So, you know, we want to build rental. We want to do it the right way. We want to try to fill it for the missing middle. But we've got to find a way to do it where it makes economic sense because we want to deliver something too to the public. 
And the only way that we've kind of gone about this, and you know, I'll talk a little bit about it, is that we've started to get involved in some prop tech. And specifically, we're getting involved in some different concrete type of technologies and, and, and mass timber technologies. And we're actually getting out of our box and investing in some of these companies and trying to form strategic relationships with them so that they can add value to our development process by shrinking the amount of time it takes and potentially, not initially, but potentially maybe bringing down the cost per foot. Do you have any suggestions, let's call it, for ways in which the sort of the municipalities can speed up their approval process? Whether you, could, you could wave a magic wand. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just, maybe it's just blanket zoning. I mean, maybe, I, what, what would you suggest other than it's just internal efficiencies, right? Well, I think, you know, we're really quick to say that, you know, they're just not getting it done in time. But I think we also have to realize that most development applications are not within the zoning paradigm. Just because we've all paid too much, we've paid a lot for the land, and what, what's next? You know what I mean? So I think there aren't enough people to deal with these files, and I think there's a lot of young people that have not been through the system yet because there's been a lot of retirement changes. I'm going to speak specifically to the city of Vancouver. And I think, you know, going the way we're going about it is we're hiring existing planning people who are consultants now who can help us through the process and who can help whoever the planning person designated to us is so that they're a bit neutral and that that we can help through the process. We're trying to also say, look, we are here to do something sustainable and we've got some different technology. We're not just here to profiteer. We want a partnership with you. And as good as that sounds, I don't know if the city has the right toolkit yet. It's going to take some time. Do you think they believe you when you say that we're not here just to make money? We're not the, and we have this conversation kind of regularly on the podcast with the big bad developers and the nimbyism that that kind of is resulted of it. And I, I do. I mean, you're probably one of ten developers we've had on over the years that all have the same kind of incentive, right? That of course yeah. they want to be profitable and make money for their shareholders or themselves. But at the same time, they're community builders. Yeah. You know, they they have a, a true desire to create something great for the city, for the tenants that people they can be proud of, that people want to live in. Like there is a need. A, a, they want to help. They really do. But I always get the sense that sometimes city developers or the sort of the city planners are just like, no, no, no. You're I, just. I, a, I don't even think it's the city planners. I think it's media. I think media is penalizes the development community in such a bad way and paints that brush on everybody. I think, you know, we take a very organic approach, grassroots approach. We make sure we know our neighbors. We're talking to them right from the beginning about what we're going to do. We try to get them involved. We are explaining that we're doing affordable or we've got some social housing component to what we're doing. We are trying to be good civic citizens, but in the end, you don't know what's going to happen. I think that's the hardest part right now. You're doing everything you can to try to create something that works. And you're not sure how, what you're going to get back. And I, I mean, this whole project, I don't know if you heard about it this morning, but there was a nonprofit project that went into the District of North Vancouver and it was shut down. And it should never have been shut down because it added value, a ton of value. What was the uh, reason? There wasn't. It was just shut down and that's the, wow. Yeah, yeah. But that council is very new and there is a ton of nimbyism there. Mm-hmm. Which is part of the biggest challenges. We, biggest, and we hear that regularly. Yeah. Take it. I mean, that was, in, you know, I hate to be Ontario-centric, and we can talk about what it's like here, but you know, historically we've had the provincial OMB, right? The municipal board, the provincial board, they could override municipalities. So that really allowed the councillors to kind of be out of it. It depoliticized the development process in Ontario. Is there anything like that in British Columbia? Let's talk about what the structure is here that, can, that you can appeal 
potentially there politicized isn't. decisions. We where, don't have an OMB. Yeah. <laughs> we just don't yeah. have that. I think, you know, I believe that the housing hub and some of the initiatives that BC Housing going, has going on can be helpful. I know that there's been, you know, different formats that the city and other municipalities have offered where they're getting developers together, they're getting renters together, and they're just having conversations to listen. Listening is great, but having expertise to execute is different. So I think it has to be representation from everywhere, not just the civic bodies. I think it has to be some developers. It needs to be some people who are renters, people who buy condos. You know, you've got to get perspective from everyone. But I think, you know, as it was said today, I think it was Eric Carlson who said, look, you know, we're building communities here and we want to do the best. And we're not necessarily the bad guys, but we're also taking the greatest risk. And nobody seems to understand that at all. Yeah, the upside at this point for a lot of these projects has gotten pretty thin, but the downsides can be enormous. But the thing with apartment construction too is that you're going to own that for a long time. It's not not the condo builders just build and then dump it on the buyers and yeah. you move on. But you know there is you have to stand by the product for decades if you're going to own it for decades. Exactly, and I think there's so many families uh, in the Lower Mainland that have bought and owned you know multifamily for ages because it's a simple asset to manage and there's very very little okay. risk in it. They want to renew their stock because it's so old and they've got to have some economic reason to do it. They just can't go out and tear down what they've got and build something new. Well, with the uh, condo market here seeing some headwinds, do you think that more apartment projects will launch as an alternative? I think what's happening is people trying to evaluate if that can happen and if there's a way to do it. I think we're in that sort of transition point. There's no right answer. You know, the government came in sort of last year. They're still getting their legs wet. You know, you got to get through this period of time. You've got to get some understanding between what the relationship is going to be between, let's say, CMHC, BC Housing. They have a great relationship. They know what they're doing. But having those two relationships with all the civic bodies so that, you know, there's financing available, there's relocation plans available. There's a ton of things going on. And somehow putting that into a package takes a lot more. It's not like before. It's not that simple, right? And I think the other thing that's happening that we've seen is some of the the very large developers have done so well in this last cycle, they don't need to do anything. And they can just sit on their land until this calms down. What is going to happen is that we're not going to get enough built. There's pent-up demand. We've got a bunch of office that's being built that's getting, that is occupied and pre-leased. It's going to result in 30,000, 40,000 new jobs. They're going to be tech-related. They're going to be a little, little bit more higher-paying. And so if that average person's making, let's say, 150 grand, they're not going to be able to afford to maybe buy a place, but they're going to want to rent a place, and they're going to want something that's quality. Mm. And well-located. And well-located. And that's not going to happen. We're not going to be ready. So it's a a combustion. It's funny that uh, you can definitely tell you're from Vancouver when you hear the statement, somebody's making $150,000 a year and cannot afford to buy, because that would obviously be, you know, that statement would be, it would not fly in most cities in Canada, yeah. but uh, yeah. Toronto, reality. Toronto's here. probably getting there or has yeah. just gotten there. Yeah. I mean, it's probably, it's been true in Vancouver for about, about a decade, but if you're living in Halifax and you just said, what, $150,000, you live in downtown and penthouse, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, so it's, it's different being in Vancouver entirely. And, and we're a city that's not driven by head offices or anything like that. We've got a bit of a tech boom going on right now, which is great. You know, we've always been a place of immigration, not so much employment. It is becoming more employment. But that immigration has brought a tremendous amount of wealth, and it is also being treated very, very poorly. I mean, I think, you know, this idea and the the multiple levels of taxation have made it problematic. 
I think we need to right-size that. I think Vancouver will always be a city that people will come to. We have a lot to offer. And, well, not just uh, uh, internationally, from within Canada. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people that I went to university and high school with that ended up out here. I've not met a lot of people from Vancouver in Toronto. Yeah. It's, uh, Once you come here, you stay here. Yeah. Yeah, the only problem, I'd love to move here. I just can't afford it. We've, yeah. re- we've repatriated people from Toronto into our office. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it's sunny here right now in Vancouver. We're, we've actually, for those that are at the conference, you'll know where we are, but for those listening, we're sitting right next to a window overlooking, almost see the water from here, and it's sunny out. And I know in Vancouver, often when it's sunny out on an afternoon, no matter what the day of the week is, it's get up and leave. Go, let's go outside and enjoy the weather while it's nice out. Yeah. Do you want to end the podcast right now and go outside. Is yeah, that, yeah. Is let's that go have a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's go for a nice walk. So, so what are you most excited about in Vancouver right now? I know that this obviously today at the forum has been a fair bit of discussion about some of the potential headwinds, but what are you excited about in terms of real estate? I think I'm really excited to see all the new development that is going on because it creates employment, especially in the office and industrial sector. I think that translates into needing more homes, which we're working on. I love the idea of being in the multifamily space. It just fits us quite nicely because of our size. Are, are you uh, intending, you're intending to hold it? This is a build and hold or? Yes. I, I think on the rental side, it'll be a build and hold. This is our intention. Not all of it will be build and hold. We hope to do some of it as condo, but at, at this point in time, we can't even think that way. But, you know, we've got a long runway on that in terms of the, the assets we're buying and the timeline that they're in. I think it's also a, a great time where, you know, not for the larger development sites, but the smaller development sites, the infill sites, there are individuals who've bought them with debt, et cetera, and the holding costs have become too much. So for us, we see that as a bit of an opportunity. So whenever there's disruption in the market, there's an opportunity. You just need to find out where it is. And we're seeing some pricing changes already. We're into a couple assets right now that, you know, six months ago, we're probably price 30% higher, 40% higher, but they didn't fit into that snack bracket of immediate development. And it came, they came back to us as just rental apartment buildings that we could implement our program on. So we're seeing a lot of change. We're seeing a lot of change and we want to be there. We, you know, in December and January, I was kind of happy because, you know, markets went down, allocations went up, interest rates were going up. These were all signs of disruption. And we're right back to where we were. We're right back where we were. (laughs) And so all of a sudden, I can't buy. I mean, you know, if you look at the core buyers, I see them still experiencing cap compression because there's a lot of money chasing very few assets. In our space, which I call sort of the B value add space, we've seen people, we don't think people are underwriting risk properly and think there's going to be problems, but we're not seeing some of those assets come back yet. We're still not seeing the Alberta market adjust for what's going on, just because there's a ton of capital at every level, not just, you know, at the institutional level. Where's yeah. that money coming from? What do, you, do you have a sense? I mean, is it just kind of everywhere? Well, you know, look, the, the institutions, all the pension funds have grown, so there's great capital. They've also recycled their capital immensely by selling and buying, doing those things, and they've grown. And we, you know, on the private side, family offices are not unique to Vancouver. They're worldwide in the way they invest, and they have investments in businesses, so they have great cash flow, and they want to deploy that in safe places. And then you have sort of, you know, high net worth individuals. So we're just finding the capital stack isn't the problem for us anymore. You know, I think we overcame that probably in 2013 and 14 because we'd grown and people knew what we were doing and it was fine. But now the problem is finding the, the assets and, and not chasing them and being really disciplined in our underwriting. It mean, cutting, cutting large check is the, the one solution to that problem, but it's not the profitable one, which yeah, is a, it isn't. the difficult thing. And you are in a highly competitive market. Yeah. 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 
So as a, um, as a woman in real estate, you mentioned that you started in the 80s. Yeah. And back then, I mean, as is now, but particularly back then, it must have been a male-dominated environment. You know, it certainly was. I started at Collier's, and there was one other woman there at the time and myself. And it, it was difficult, but not. I think, you know, I consider myself an outlier in terms of how I grew because I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, I tried to use it for me, not against me. And, and there were not very many women at that time in the industry. And there continue not to be in decision-making places, but the, it is changing. I mean, I think, you know, what you had in the 80s and the early 90s, very few women were there. In the 90s, not that many people entered the industry, so there's sort of a gap. So the people in our leadership are 50 plus, and they are going to hire the people they know because it's a business of relationships. And now you're getting a lot more women who are stepping up to the plate. I look around at these conferences and I see diversity. You know, 20, 30% of it is diversity, and part of that includes women, people of color, all those things. And I think that is the shift. And so if you've gone to some of these conferences, you hear some of the guys get up and they talk about, you know, having more women involved in boards and in organizations. They have a 50-50 mandate. I think the most important thing is that if you're hiring, it should be based on merit. And if you have two people who have exactly the same merit, then give that person, give that woman, give that person of diversity a chance. At th- yeah. That would be the at only the same, thing. At, at the same pay. At the yeah. same pay, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Give them an opportunity. I noticed, so I'm too old now to attend under 35 events, but when I did go to them several years ago, there you would see a very mixed crowd. Yeah. So at that level of the industry, you know, it is, and over time, obviously people will grow through the ranks of the businesses. You will see a change over time. But yeah, people that are in senior leadership positions who've been in the business for 30 years, it's definitely one end of the spectrum. <laughs> it is, yeah. very much so. I think, but it's awareness too, right? I, mean, I, I think th- it's awareness. I, I don't think anybody went out of their way to just make sure that's the way it was going to be. I think that may be the case in banking and somebody's going to shoot me for saying that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, all the folks that I've dealt with in this industry are about merit. And once they get to know you, and you know, my entire business has been based on relationships and creating one relationship at a time based on respect, merit, doing what you say you're going to do and building a reputation. And I don't think that's gender related. I think that's true of anybody, mm-hmm. right? So thank you very much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. You can hear the uh, noise in the background. Yeah, you think out. I think we're we're being forced off in the air here. Um, the, and there's, there's one last question that we we kind of rotate these through. But you know, if you had advice for yourself or someone like yourself from 25 years ago or, or back, what advice would you give yourself? Sort of just just to back to your first day of college. Yeah. Years? What would you What would you say now with the experience and where you you have ended up? Have the right skill set. Be confident, have integrity, be authentic, and deliver. Execute. Yeah. yeah. Great. Good advice. Yeah, thank you, Schnorr, for coming on. We appreciate, uh, appreciate your insight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.